0: right, folks, we just had a great interview with Jesse Odesma. Jesse is the founder of Homework Development, a woman-owned and diversity-driven real estate development firm. Homework specializes in managing affordable housing and small-to-mid-scale urban infill projects from sourcing to completion. In 2021, Jesse launched Short Stack Housing, a multi-site mass timber modular approach to accelerate the production of the missing middle housing in the Portland metro area. Please enjoy our conversation. Also, Myself, my colleague, Corey Whitesell, and my other colleague, Victoria Whitaker are going to be at the ULI Spring Conference next week in San Diego. If you're there, please give us a shout. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Welcome to the episode. All right, Jesse Ledesma in Portland, Oregon. Oregon, excuse me. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show. How are you today?
1: Thanks for having me. I'm doing well, you know. It's a Tuesday. Week is clicking by.
0: It is clicking by. Soon it'll be Wednesday, which my son has a half-day Wednesday for some reason. Every Wednesday they have half-days. I don't know if they have that in Oregon.
1: The school schedules are a little unpredictable these days.
0: Do you have any kids?
1: I do. I have two daughters. I have a first-grader and a fifth-grader.
0: Oh, I got a sixth grader. Ooh. Son. And uh, you are the principal at homework development. Uh, you have a long history in real estate development. Um, can you tell the world, the world, about homework, please?
1: I can. I would love to. So I founded homework a little over a year ago in early 2021, really with the intention of focusing on Attainable housing, small-scale development, starting in the Portland area. And I really just wanted to take kind of a fresh approach to real estate development and think of the industry um, more broadly um, in terms of, you know, what we're accomplishing when we build buildings and when we, especially when we get into housing development, you know, what we're really trying to accomplish with attainable housing and just being more responsible in our development approach Um, and I was sort of, you know, coming up against some of those values, uh, when in other work and I figured I should launch my own firm and (laughs) hit the ground running. I haven't looked back. It's been really exciting and fun and challenging to be an entrepreneur and to run my own business as compared to being, you know, say a director of development for another firm. Yeah. Uh, But I, am excited to be in this position.
0: What does uh, attainable housing mean? And, and what are those values that you're talking about?
1: Well, attainable housing is housing that's affordable for working folks. I mean, that's kind of the broad definition. We hear like workforce housing. Yeah. We hear middle missing middle housing or housing for middle earners. All of these terms are circling around the same concept, which is that we, you know, we continue to stratify uh, housing prices, uh, mm-hmm. mostly in, you know, metro areas where uh, affordable housing, capital A affordable housing that's funded and subsidized pretty heavily through public sources and in, in federal funding is available for those who are very low income, you know, from homeless kind of transitional shelter housing to those earning in our area up to Thirty to fifty thousand dollars a year, mm. uh, and then with just housing prices skyrocketing and a huge undersupply, market rate housing is you know shooting upwards. Um, in In the Portland area, I think we've built seven new units for every ten new households over oh, wow. the past decade, and and I think that's actually more more statewide. Uh, but there's a there's just a gross undersupply, and you know as with any Business endeavor, when we have forces of supply and demand, when there's an undersupply, then demand is higher and prices are higher. But the households and the individuals who are really being left out of this equation, even as we funnel more money into affordable housing, low income housing, mm-hmm. the households who are left out of this equation are just the working folks, the people who keep our city running, um, who are earning you know, a middle income, middle class income teachers, baristas, bus drivers, you know, you name it. Uh, we've now learned the term essential worker, you know, over yeah, the last yeah, couple of yeah. years. And that's, I think, another great description for a lot of people in that income bracket is they're essential workers. We need them to keep our cities running and to keep our cities lively and wonderful places to be. And they, most people in that income bracket can't afford a, a home. Um, in the Portland area, the statistics from last year show that nearly 50% of renters are, are cost burdened, meaning mm. they spend more than 30% of their gross income on housing. And even more critical- I thought
0: that's I, what I meant to be living on the West Coast. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I know, it's, it's sobering. <laughs> um, I would just say that like when we're talking about values, even more critical, I think, in that statistic is- what's happening for affordability and, and housing availability for our BIPOC neighbors. So again, in the Portland area, um, based on from research from 2020 actually, and it's probably worse today. If you took the average household income of a black or native American household, there wasn't a single neighborhood in the Portland Metro region that was affordable to rent. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you, You know, I see statistics like that. I see my own neighborhood changing and what's happening with folks around me trying to buy a home or rent a home. And that's where I think my values as a developer and my values with what I want to accomplish with homework, that's where they really stem from, is to try to just help in some way solve this problem to make our cities more livable and affordable for everyday working folks.
2: Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Sounds like you're you know, doing big things in your community and uh, you're going for it with homework. So it's it's great that you launched and you, you took the leap of faith.
1: Total leap of faith. Thank you. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of work to be done and the industry is busy. So it's a good time, I think, to be an entrepreneur in this space. Uh, there's a lot of movement, but it, it does take some courage to jump.
0: Yeah. So at the moment, homework doesn't take any government subsidies or anything, right?
1: Homework as a firm? No, I don't. Uh, we don't. But some of the projects that we're working oh, on there's some
0: projects. Y- do. Okay.
1: Yeah. There are some subsidies and those are, you know, it gets a little wonky when we get into some of the financials, which I'm happy to dive. We're wonky. Into, yeah,
0: so it, it's not a se- So you were working in the Af- capital A affordable world and you were like, Hey, this isn't actually addressing this need that I see. And so I'm going to create something that does. So what is your, what does homework do that you, you know, capital A affordable wasn't doing and market rates not doing. Like, how are you able to do that?
1: Yeah, well, essentially the outcome is housing that's affordable at that income range, right? That's the outcome. And affordable housing is not meeting that need because uh, the households that I'm talking about are over income to qualify for Mm -hmm. lower income affordable housing and market forces aren't meeting that need because home builders and most developers and most people selling their home are looking for the, the buyer with the highest offer. You know, unless there's some incentive uh, to or someone wants to voluntarily cap that price, then the market forces won't typically lead to more middle income affordability. And with my work with homework and specifically with the short stack housing project that I want to talk with you guys about um, that I'm co-developing with my uh, partner, Anna McKay of Sister City Development, she and I are, are working to deliver You know, middle missing middle housing, um, both in terms of building scale and affordability levels,
0: Mm.
1: by being really thoughtful in our design and our development process, by being creative in our financing sources. um, Can talk about that a little bit. And by, you know, we're out there trying to convince investors, and we are convincing investors. That it's important to invest in this type of housing um, for a lot of different reasons, but we like to call it kind of the whole return, where mm. it's not just delivering a return on investment that's hitting a six percent cap rate or you know whatever these metrics are that real estate developers and investors are pretty focused on. But what else is it returning to the community, and what is it returning to the industry more broadly? And so that's um, that's kind of the the basis of what homework is is trying to accomplish and more specifically with the short stack project.
0: Yeah, can we well yeah, let's talk about short stack. Not pancakes, right?
1: Not pancakes, but oh,
0: kind of sounds Mike, cute, Mike, right? <laughs> Mike 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 was drooling. I saw him drooling.
1: <laughs> well, the name is is apt. You know, we're we're talking about shorter buildings, um 3-4 story walk-up buildings that mm-hmm. are small in scale. You know, we say urban infill, and that means different things in different cities, depending on your density and your scale and the height of your buildings. In the Portland area, Missing Middle is at that three to five-story range, you know, in between a residential home or duplex and a larger five- or six-story apartment building over a concrete podium. So we're kind of like straddling in between those two scales, and that's one definition of the term Missing Middle that we hear it's like that actual housing scale. Or if you're looking at an urban design range of, of housing typologies, you'll see this in the middle. Um, But the other definition of missing middle, as I mentioned, is the income levels for folks who can afford those homes. Gotcha.
0: And then uh, you mentioned the financing side of it, like affordable, like capital A affordable housing. Uh, I'm, pretty familiar with the different, you know, there's a ton of different types of, in the capital stack, there's a lot of different layers there. Like what, what specifically do you homework and short stack use?
1: So, yeah, let me talk about how it's a little different than the capital A affordable housing finance sources you mentioned, Chris. So I actually, I did, I developed affordable housing, primarily tech housing, low income housing tax credit uh, for about eight years I think I closed about 10 deals with that as the primary source. And the low-income housing tax credit is one of the most prolific uh, federal funding sources to to fund affordable housing. But you often have to couple that with local grants and incentives and system development charge waivers and favorable loan terms. You kind of put together quite a complicated stack of sources in order to fund capital A affordable housing. Or low-income housing, and it's super competitive. You know, there's a lot of really knowledgeable and really well-connected community development organizations in in most of our cities, and there just aren't enough resources to meet all of the needs. So these mostly nonprofit developers, but for-profit developers as well, are competing for limited sources yeah. to deliver low-income housing, and and all of them represent neighborhoods and communities of color and and in different service levels, they're all important and they're all needed, but they're kind of pitted against each other. And so with ShortStack, I'm trying to create a model that can move a little quicker, that isn't reliant on that competitive public funding cycle and and competition uh, that is, I would say, softly subsidized with a few key grants and incentives um, that allow it to pencil. And we're also raising six and a half million dollar impact equity fund as the equity tranche of of short stack. Uh, Yeah. That, you know, is getting very close, I would say to a market return. It's not quite hitting top of the market return, but we're getting close and we're, we're seeing some great feedback from investors who are interested. That I talked about, but also the risk adjusted return when you compare investing in like high end market rate housing that is more subject to market forces versus what we're delivering with short stack. It's like very reliable rents. It's 10% below market. It it will be leased all day long. So your investment is a little safer in that space.
0: Is it getting more better returns in my savings account?
1: Yes, (laughs) quite a bit. Yeah.
2: Jesse, I have a, a two or three part question for you. Um, involves the building and construction process. I guess the first question is, are you, are you doing new construction, ground up construction, or are you mostly doing like rehab work? Um, that's the first question. Second question is what, talk to me a little bit about the building process. Are you self-performing? Are you hiring contractors? Um, and then materials costs. I know those are through the roof right now. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, what you're doing to, you know, establish cost-effective materials for your, for your developments.
1: Yeah. What's the construction model. So I should back up a step and kind of describe the short stack project at a high level. Short stack is 70 units of missing middle housing delivered across four sites. These are urban infill size sites where we're delivering six to 30 units per property. And that's a critical part of this development effort because it's, very inefficient to build a sixplex or a 12plex or even 30 units on a custom one off basis. You know, you have the same level of, of scrutiny from your lenders and investors and from your city entitlements that you would have for 100 units. And you have to have the same set of consultants as you would for 100 units. So the economies of scale just make that really difficult. Mm-hmm. But when we combine multiple sites into one development effort, like we're doing with Shores Tech, we start to see a lot more efficiencies kind of across the projects. And that's in the upfront soft costs, design, engineering, lawyering, all that upfront stuff. Uh, it's also in the construction. And I think Mike, that was the root of your question is that, you know, we we're pulling every lever we can to increase construction efficiency. And this is the number, and, and this is new construction. I should say, you you did ask Mm -hmm. that question. This is ground up new construction. um, And we need to pull every lever we can to make this more efficient. Construction costs are, you know, I hate to use the phrase out of control because something is controlling it. Something is controlling it. Yeah, construction (laughs) prices are astronomical where we continue to be in unprecedented territory with construction pricing. um, And it's getting harder and harder to build small scale projects. And I think our cities are suffering from that because we're losing that kind of neighborhood fabric, this gentle density or neighborhood scale housing that we saw, um, you know, a lot of that housing type built in the mid-century of of last of the last century, but also in the early 19th century through the 20s and 30s. Uh, we have a lot of that housing stock, I think, in a lot of different cities in this two, three, four uh, story building type. But then once we got into the kind of like go, go, go development era, starting in the seventies and really picking up speed in the eighties, nineties and two thousands, mm. you had developers really, really focused on building large scale projects. Um, and then you had a lot of single family home builders cranking out single family homes, but we kind of lost that, that in between scale. And there's a lot of reasons for that. So back to the question of construction efficiency, it's like the row homes, houses, the row houses. Exactly. The row houses are a great example of that in the Bay Area, right? Where it's it's probably, you know, I, I'm not super familiar with that construction market, but I have to believe it's really hard to make that pencil to build that from the ground up. Like you have this wonderful historic fabric of yeah. this, you know, middle scale housing that people just love, uh, but it's really hard to replicate that and build new. Yeah, And so we're really seeing that we we need to get to this. Ideally, closer to 80 to 100, but I think at a minimum 50 to 70 units at a time to get Mm. a good economy of scale in your design, engineering, and then in your contracting and buyout. And what we're hearing from our construction partners um, is that we can get really efficient and deliberate with our construction sequencing across multiple small sites like the short stack scale, where we have one project management team and they're they're basically sequencing the the projects to move trades through on like say a 2-month schedule yeah. where it's not start to finish all on all four projects are on the same construction schedule and they're not back to back but they're overlapped strategically so that that same project management team is now managing 70 units four sites rather than just one small site at a time
0: have you considered like some of our clients have started using some prefab stuff or um, I mean, is there anything out there, you know, better than I do about like what could also help or what are some of like other creative ideas to help with the, the construction costs? Cause I, I'm actually involved with a deal in, uh, San Francisco. Um, yeah, we've been way over, um, way under returns, way over schedule Had to raise, you know, new capital and stuff like that. And it's a, for, a, you know, it's, it's my buddy's firm and it's a higher end stuff. So we're not. He's not looking to use anything creative, like to be cost effective basically. So is there Mm -hmm. other things out there that could help with cost effective construction besides the things you mentioned that you've researched at all?
1: Yes. I would add two other critical elements to make the construction more cost effective for the short stack project. One is design replicability and unit replicability. We're really spending a lot of time with our architecture team to productize some ideal units that are reused (laughs) And, and reconfigured across multiple sites. So we have one two-bedroom townhome unit, one three-bedroom townhome unit, one one-bed, one studio unit. We're not getting um, custom with those unit types as we, as we scale them. So our contractor partners and their subs and suppliers will see the same kitchen 70 times. You know, they, the layout yeah, yeah. and the details will be really, really predictable, which helps with their costing, right? And the second piece, you mentioned prefab, we're using a hybrid modular approach uh, through uh, the use of mass timber construction. And mass timber broadly uh, describes large structural panels that are comprised uh, of different uh, wood fiber techniques, either mass plywood which is what we're currently designing short stack to utilize which is is exactly what it sounds like these are giant sheets of structural plywood or cross laminated timber which is the other most prevalent mass timber construction type and cross laminated timber also called clt is comprised of standard um, dimensional lumber that's basically stacked in different directions to get uh, whatever structural width that is needed for the span and that's more akin to like glue glulam construction that we've seen a lot of the benefits of mass timber and mass plywood in particular are, uh, are multi-leveled. So we have a great structural capacity in this uh, construction type. We can span further than stick frame construction. So we have more flexibility in determining that ideal unit that I was describing We also, in terms of replicability and productization of a housing unit, the mass timber panel, it really lends itself to this kind of flat-packed, sort of semi-modular approach where we are optimizing the design for the standard panel sizes so we don't have to do a lot of cutting and customizations to the Mm. panels that come off the manufacturer's shelf, as you will. They're they're trucked, flat-packed to the site, and they're lifted into place. When you couple that kind of floor and roof structure with a panelized framed wall that's also panelized off site and arrives flat packed to the site, your structure can go up in a matter of days rather than a matter of weeks. And we're seeing that we can shave 20 to 30% off of our construction schedule using this hybrid approach. And this is different than volumetric modular that we also hear a lot about in the industry, and a lot of folks are out there trying to, to make that work, um, where you have a full six-sided volume, that a unit or mm. a box that arrives on site and craned into place. So this is, a, this is a different off-site prefab approach, but we think this hybrid flat-packed panelized approach is more efficient, especially when we're building in urban infill locations that can be tricky to get to and to crane into. Um, we think we can be a lot more nimble with this construction type.
0: Nice. I know what Mike's thinking. Why is she getting uh, timber from Massachusetts? It's mass timber, massive, not massive. <laughs>
1: massive timber. Yeah. yeah, grown in Oregon. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you're providing, you know, you're providing housing, but also high quality housing, which is important. Um, it is
1: high quality, and I'm glad you said that because that's a major differentiator between, you know, just typical stick-built housing uh, with mm-hmm. the mass plywood and mass timber panels. You really have a higher quality, like sturdier building. It has superior uh, fireproofing and structural uh, capacities, but you also see the wood, which is really awesome. So you can expose the wood on on one side or the other. In our case, we're exposing the wood on the ceiling and we're covering up on the floor for acoustic separation.
2: Sounds Mm -hmm. like construction tech to me.
1: A little bit, but it's pretty You should go with that
0: angle. You should go with that angle. You get there a lot. You, go. you get a lot of investors, and you can just implode and run away with all their money.
1: <laughs> right, and we've seen that with a recently with a mass timber manufacturer in the Pacific Northwest. It's funny. I laugh when you say construction tech because we're really careful to communicate to our investors and potential funders and partners that this is not high tech. This is not new technology. You know, we've been utilizing glue lamps and and plywood for yeah. nearly a hundred years. <laughs> we're just using it as on a different scale. But there's no magic tech that's involved. It's just a really wonderful construction source that is really efficiently uh, utilizing our timber and is helping to promote sustainable forestry practices as well. So there's kind of all these multi-layered benefits when we look at thinning our forest to prevent wildfires, for instance. We can utilize those smaller diameter trees that we need to thin in order to improve our forest health. We can use that into this product.
2: Awesome. That's That's so cool. And is homework performing this construction or do you hire like local general contractors?
1: That's right. You asked that Mike and we are hiring local general contractors.
2: Gotcha. Okay. So homework is the developer. Okay. Is the goal one day to bring it all in house or is it, is that, is that far down the road?
1: You know, I have um, sat in the seat of the GC uh, once on a prior project uh, when Mm -hmm we had to let the general contractor go and I kind of took over and that was a great learning experience coming from the development side, you know, and and kind of trading hats and seeing the challenges. Um, I would say that both homework and my partner, Anna with Sister City, I think we are capable of running a GC firm as well. And, And that's certainly in the cards for us in the future. But for the time being, we're, we're primarily focused on the development. But we're being really, really thoughtful and intentional about who we're engaging on the construction side. You know, I mentioned this, the value and the goal of, of diversifying the industry. And so I, I think with the Shorestack stack project in particular, Anna and I want to show how we can put together a more diverse and representative team really across the development spectrum from, you know, design, engineering, uh surveys, civil, you know, all these folks that we engage in a project to the contractors. uh, And then even further on through property management, asset management, you know, who's helping us run the firm. We're trying to create a more diverse team along the way.
2: Jesse, let's talk about your background a little bit. Um, And I mean, Chris and I are in the people business. So we, you know, we partner with owners, developers, contractors, management firms, private equity, you name it. What do you look for? in a candidate. And I guess, how did you get to where you are today? I know you kind of worked for others and and kind of saw a need and attacked it. Yeah. Two part question. What do you look for in candidates to potentially work for homework and talk to us about how you got to where you are at today?
1: Sure. So, um, I have a degree in architecture from the university of Oregon. Which was a really fun degree to get. I have to say, it is a lot of work. It's kind of grueling hours with the presentation schedule, but it taught me a lot about talking to people, like like you all are in the business of doing, of presenting an idea and defending it creatively, um, and also just presenting an idea of a, both verbally and you know through imagery and through pictures and renderings and painting the story of of a building or a development from the kind of creative design angle. When I was coming out of school, it was 2007 and the, you know, hadn't quite hit the recession. The industry was still in full, um, full blast mode at that point, but the business path to be an architect, like if you look at the career path, it's, it's, it's problematic. I would say it's really difficult to kind of move up into leadership roles. There's a grueling, there's a long internship process. The salaries are, are, there's a, quite a ceiling on salaries. And I think it's it's a long road to get to being your own boss or running yeah. your own firm. And I was lucky enough coming out of architecture school that um, I was placed with a three-year fellowship. It's called the Enterprise Rose Fellowship. It's a national fellowship that places architecture grads with community development organizations. Is that
0: what, through Enterprise Community
1: that is through enterprise community development. Yeah, it was originally started through Jonathan Rose companies. It, yep. You might be a big New York um, player, of course. Yeah. Uh, and then enterprise community partners basically took over, took over management of the fellowship uh, several right years here. into it. Oh, there you go. Jonathan Rose. He's, he's <laughs> one of my development heroes. I, I think he's just such a fantastic my, person. Mike,
0: you should get this book.
1: Yeah, the I need it. Three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, So I was placed with an organization called the Farmworker Housing Development Corporation, building farmworker housing in Oregon's mid-Willamette Valley uh, for three years. And that was fantastic because it was diving feet first into the world of affordable and community development. Uh, I had a lot of mentorship and support through that process. And it it quickly aligned me to um, what I'm attracted to in the industry, what I'm good at. And to me, that really um, is this marriage of kind of right brain and left brain thinking and working when we're when we're working on real estate development. Every day is a little different, right? We're, we're talking to architects, we're talking to city planners, we're imagining the concept of a design. But we also have like the nuts and bolts pro forma and financial analysis that has to match with that creative process along the way. And I found that that matchup was something I was good at and I was really interested in. And I could see a need for that in the industry as well. Uh, So I ended up doing affordable housing development for a total of about eight years. And then I pivoted into commercial development, more kind of large scale mixed use for Mm -hmm. a family firm in Portland, building office, uh, did one hotel, some, you know, a little bit of multifamily, didn't complete a multifamily project with that firm, uh, but had a lot of fun in the commercial yeah. development space as well. You know, a totally different financial and investment model. Um, but I am glad that I've had the experience of both that kind of affordable housing, publicly funded work, and the purely commercial private work because it's really set me up with my endeavors under homework to be able to kind of creatively squirt between, or, you know, between the two worlds.
0: Yeah, the fine line, I guess, right?
1: The fine line, yeah.
0: And then, I mean, did you grow up as your family in real estate or community? Like, where did this whole? I mean, it seems like you have a big passion towards giving back and creating a better community, which not everyone has. Was that something? Uh, definitely, Mike does not have that. He likes he likes to take, not give. Uh, is there? A, My hands are always out. Yeah. Is there? Where did that come from? Did you grow up in a in a family like that? Was your anyone in real estate?
1: No, no one was in real estate, and I have to say, this is probably one of. I'd say there's two large hurdles to getting into the real estate development world. The first hurdle is just even understanding that it's a career path, that it's an industry. Unless you have family you know, who are doing real estate development or who are in the brokerage world or the lending world or the asset management, kind of one of these auxiliary uh, industries, it's, there's not much education, I think, to our young people about how we shape our cities and how that can shape your career pathways. So yeah. I wasn't even really aware of the real estate development firm as a career pathway uh, until I got into that community development arena. Um, I would say the, the other major hurdle, of course, is access to capital. And I say, of course, yeah. maybe that's not obvious, but you know, for those who don't already have family wealth or a portfolio of buildings as a balance sheet uh, that they can borrow against, it's really difficult to break into the real estate development industry. And I think that's a major obstacle.
0: So you stole your money. I love it. Mm-hmm. You're like Robin Hood. Uh, now, today is International w- Women's Day. What is... I mean, Mike and I have been recruiting. The real estate industry, especially, I don't know, I mean, on the West Coast too, but I, and especially on the East Coast, old boys club, yeah. a lot of old white guys who look kind of like me and Mike, but older, um, are all in it. I'm sure it was um, not the easiest thing to kind of navigate as a woman. Like, uh, is there... I'm sure there's more now than, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, but like, yeah, I guess some of the hurdles you had to face, like how, what kind of obstacles did you face being a woman in the development, especially development, I think is definitely more male focused. Yeah, it's
1: really one of the most exclusive industries, you know, I think we've, we've made progress in construction, we're starting to make progress in finance too, Um, but real estate development is so overwhelmingly white and male. It it, it can be really challenging as a female coming into the profession. I have the privilege of being white myself, uh, so I'm not overcoming the kind of double challenges of being a female of color in the industry, of course. Um, But I I heard a stat the other day that in the, I think, $15 trillion real estate development and investment industry in the U.S., 3% of the leaders are not white male. Yeah. You know, so you've got 97% of folks leading yeah. and, and managing investment funds and all that, controlling the money, really, if we're, if right. we're talking, you know, candidly, um, that are, you know, almost all white male. And we're, we're seeing progress, I think. And this goes back to the question about the ideal candidate, because I do want to come back to that. Um, you know, a lot happy of- happy you remembered. Yeah, a lot She's of gr- leaders- Jess is
0: great. She always comes back to all our questions. She never forgets. <laughs>
1: She yeah, writes I keep, them down. I can keep two or three things in my mind, you guys. Don't test me further than that. Um, Design,
2: construction, and development.
1: Yeah, and finance, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I would say in, in, in my sphere, in the Portland world, and in Seattle as well, we have a lot of women now in leadership positions in real estate development. Not a lot of owners of real estate development firms, but a lot of directors of development, vice presidents, you know, really getting into meaningful executive level positions. And I think that is just showing us that we're making progress in terms of diversifying our industry. But I think we, there's like a broader shift and this goes to other professionals as well in other industries, probably finance being the most apt, is that we, we need to shift what we think a real estate developer looks like. You know, there's there's kind of a vision of of what that guy right looks like in the in the suit and the fancy car. Um, it's not so different than in you know a hedge fund manager or something, right? We kind of we have this visual of who's competent in this space, and you know we're we're starting to shake that up a little bit. Thankfully, with the um, I'd have to say one of the silver linings in the pandemic, right, is this kind of loosening of office clothing and how we present ourselves as professionals, it's become more casual. And I think that's a good thing for diversifying our field because it's starting to kind of level the field of of what a professional looks like. Um, But, you know, in terms of an ideal candidate, I really do look for people who are coming with a unique set of skills, who have people skills, but also have analytical skills, can read a room. You know, you got to read that construction trailer and be able to sense the moods of everyone you're you're dealing with, or whether you're talking to um, a group of investors or bankers. You got to really be able to kind of read who you're talking to and, and give the information that speaks to them, right? So there's kind of there are the people um, the people skills that are pretty critical. Um, but I certainly am in a position where it's important for me to give a leg up or to kind of help launch careers uh, for people of color and for females in the industry who are, you know, advancing their careers, I I definitely would look for that.
0: Do you, I mean, that's one of the reasons we kind of do this podcast too, is we try to highlight, uh, folks. I mean, definitely focus more on women and diversity, um, just to spotlight that. And we have part of our practice at Jackson Lucas is we have a lot of our clients come to us and they don't, you know, they don't even know how to what, you know there's a woman who works with us uh her name's Victoria Whitaker and her one of her specialties is she's a black woman and she helps clients come up with interview questions um how to onboard and all that kind of stuff because it's a whole it's a whole different way it's just different than what people think are used to right mm-hmm. um more inclusive way about it is there um is there something that you do specifically to like, are you going back or what, what could people do? Like go back to colleges or like have interns or there's cer- there certain things. Cause I have to get this question a lot from my clients. Cause they're like, shit. I mean, some of them basically like the bottom line is investors want to see more diverse people on these marketing freaking decks. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. very <laughs> much so, so.
0: It's like they need to, and I mean, with good, some of them have really great intentions too. And some of them just do it for the return. Either way, it's getting the, the job done. Um, is there something that companies could be doing? I know you're not speaking for all companies, but just maybe off the top of your head that could be helping get, make this real estate industry more diverse. Cause Mike and I only work within real estate, in real estate industry. So we have a lot of clients who are, you know, have those investor decks versus all a bunch of white guys and they're like, shit. Yep. What do we do? How do we, you know, get attract more diverse talent? Cause it's hard to attract diverse talent. when you don't have any diverse talent to begin with cuz like we've had some of our clients who are all white guys and we talk to a woman and she's like super qualified she's like I don't want to work there
1: like why would I do that to myself
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah type of thing you know
1: yeah it's it's challenging um i'm on the ULI Women's Leadership Institute founding committee in Portland uh-huh. and that's a big topic and it's a group of very well accomplished leaders in the field all all female talking about this exact question is like, how do we get more women into the industry? How do we promote them within the industry? How do we build their confidence to be a leader, to to ask for leadership positions? And it's multi-pronged. I think like one great method is just representation. It's getting females on those panels and on the, you know, the biz now or the state of the real estate investment world, you know, all these, um, presentations and panels where we're hearing from experts. Like let's start diversifying who we think an ex- like what we think an expert looks like um, and expanding our minds of that. Because it does go back to what I said is like what we we have an idea of, in our head of of what an expert real estate developer or finance person looks like. And the, the more females we see up on stage, I think we'll we'll start to broaden our idea of that. Um, it's also mentorship, I think, and, and, and it's building confidence, uh, whether it's in the office or in a construction trailer or walking into, you know, a meeting with a lender, it's building confidence to ask for what you need and to stand up for your values and, you know, for what's best for the project and just kind of, I think, come at it with a more confident and strong, um, point of view that a lot of females are are more timid to do you know no. and again there's exceptions to every rule there's not a a, a male female dynamic that's hard and fast certainly but i think in my experience i've seen a, a lot more timidity in females than i have in the men in the industry
0: right um i yeah i think it's kind of just training growing up right
1: it's a, yeah i would say there's a third element too which is allyship you know we talk a lot about diversity diversity and and Diversifying the field and, and seeing this, you know, that sea of white men on on a company's marketing deck. Um, but if we're talking about allyship, I think women can really strategically ask for help and assistance and, and allyship from their male counterparts. And I'll use an example in my own recent experience where I was negotiating with a broker on purchasing a piece of land, and I had a really good idea based on my own research of what that land value was. And the broker wasn't really having it, right? Wow. He he thought differently. And I was trying to educate him about the different zones and what is allowed. And he he wasn't following. And it was clear I I knew more than he did. But it was also clear to me that he was brushing me off. I had to assume because I was female, he had never met me. He didn't know anything about my background. And sometimes you just kind of get that sense that someone is... Speaking to you differently based on your gender, you, you can't always put your finger on it. Yeah, uh, but I, I definitely felt that from him. So I reached out to another developer in town, Kevin Kavanaugh, wonderful guy with Gorilla Development.
0: Oh, cool. Good kind name. of,
1: yeah, it's a great name. I, he I works
0: for uh, zoos,
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I explained to him what was going on, and he, of course, was like, "Yeah, that's exactly the land value I would have offered as well." Let me give the broker a call. So he called the broker the next day with the same offer. Of course, it was accepted. This is a tall white guy, right? Um, I wasn't surprised by that. And then Kevin assigned me the contract, you know, so I ended up with it anyway. But when we're talking about allyship, I think that's just such a great example of like, I, I was feeling a ceiling. I was feeling that someone wasn't taking me seriously. So I was strategic. I reached out to someone I knew and trusted that would help me here, who stepped in as kind of a proxy really to get this yeah. land under contract. And of course it was accepted in that way. And I think that um, women can definitely use allies, you know, often to help advance.
0: That's great. Kevin Kavanaugh.
1: Kevin Kavanaugh. Same, G- same. In the day. <laughs> he, gave, he,
0: gave, he gave it an Irish goodbye.
1: Yeah, he did. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, well, I was getting a little cold in my house, so we're going to have to put you on the hot seat. Are you ready for the hot seat? Jesse Ledesma.
1: I'm
0: ready. Oh. The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides, you know, everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com, K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Okay. Well, this is, a, this is a, a question we used to have, and now I'm inspired to ask it again since I showed you a book I have on my bookshelf. Do you have any book recommendations for whether it's state of mind or something to do with real estate or public policy or something besides a romance novel?
1: You just assume I'm focused on romance novels? Because you're a woman. Because I'm a woman. I see. I
0: see. How about a book on war? or book? No, I just mean like... Uh,
1: Guns, germs, and steel.
0: I, that, that's a great book, actually. I'm reading... Uh, a I'm, re- I'm reading... Uh, I'm just thinking of fluff. Something fluffy. Besides something fluff. Besides like literature. Is there is there a good right. book that you've been reading?
1: I haven't read uh, her recently, but I do love Jane Jacobs. Kind of a classic, you know, urban design planner who wrote a lot about the fabric of our city and exactly the topic that I started on with this kind of missing middle, gentle density, bringing a more human scale to our city planning. Um, her work and her writing, I think, is just as relevant today as when she wrote it 20, 30 years ago. Um, so I, 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 she has three or four titles, which of course, they're not coming to okay. mind at we'll, the we'll, moment. We'll, but put
0: them, we'll put them in the chat. In the, uh, put them
1: in the, in the edit. But the Jane notes. Jacobs is, uh, I would say, a rock star in the urban design, urban planning world.
0: Um, perfect. All right. Well, I got to look. Because I, like, I love urban planning and all that kind of stuff. Cities. I mean, I don't do it, but I really like reading about it. Mike, would you like to ask question number two? What do
2: they say when you can't do, you just read? <laughs> That's
0: true. <laughs> When you can't do you recruit, you recruit. Uh,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Jesse, what is your most memorable deal that you've completed?
1: So I was working on a tax credit deal when the recession hit in, you know, 08, 09, and it was uh, a very complicated time to be closing projects because the tax credit investors' whole outlook was changing rapidly in front of them. Mm -hmm. And of course, that trickles down to the development world. Uh, So I was part of basically closing like one of the last tax credit deals before everything shut down for a good year there. Um, And that was really through the will of the team just being super committed to each other and to get creative really, really quickly and react really quickly to what was happening you know, in the financial meltdown kind of in real time. And that's always stuck with me, as just one of the ways that like our collaborative approach and our team approach in real estate development and, and finance can overcome these really challenging, you know, financial and economic, uh, you know, meltdowns or changes in our industry. I think as a as a team, if you trust each other and you're committed to a deal, you can you can get through those waves.
2: If there's a will, there's
1: a way. If there's a will, there's a way. It's true. I, someone said to me, like every deal dies five times or something, you know, and it's true. I mean, you, you get a little bit further in the development process. You're confirming your assumptions and then, oh, fuck, you know, the, the lender market changed or interest rates hiked or construction pricing went through the roof or this entitlement fell through. You know, there's a million different things uh, that contribute to a real estate deal falling apart. And you have to just kind of like, be nimble and work through it, and trust the people around you to to stay on your team. If I think if you've deliberately built a team that has that kind of trust, so yeah, I like that. Where there's a will, there's a way. You just have to push through. Little bit of magical thinking, yeah, but it usually works.
0: We have the same thing with all, all of our recruiting deals. Same thing. It's like pushing a little ball up a hill, and then there's so many dips and valleys. And a lot stuff.
2: of hoping and a lot of praying.
0: Stops and, and starts. A lot of teamwork.
1: Stops, stops and, and starts them. is right it's not for the faint of heart
0: no it could be you can't get super tied to the outcome because it's exhausting
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh do you have any advice for anyone looking to break into this field just maybe someone coming out of college or someone in college thinking or about even it. someone
2: in like design you know mm-hmm. I, I talk to a lot of architects who they feel like they're stuck at you know an architecture firm or a design firm Just to add on to Chris's question, you know, what would you tell an architect that's looking to get into development?
1: I say architects are really well positioned to go into development because of this kind of holistic skill set that I was talking about in terms of defending an idea and presenting an idea. And I think with a little bit of education around financial modeling, which is usually like the piece that is is missing because most architecture offices don't need to, to work on financial modeling. With just a little bit of education, whether it's a class at a university or reading a book or you know taking a ULI course in pro forma modeling, I think that's like the the one little missing piece that would make most architects great development project managers.
0: Cause you don't even have to be that great at modeling, right? You just kind of have to, you
1: really don't. You just have to be able to read the model, understand how it works, you know, and of course you can get more complicated as you go, but if you walk in and, and, and I also have to say that most development firms are understaffed right now, everyone needs project managers. It's hard to find people just like the labor shortage we're hearing about all over. And I'm constantly getting calls like, Hey, keep your ear out for a great kind of, you know, earlier mid level project manager um, so I would say that if you're in the architecture field or if you're in the banking field or asset management or, you know, mortgage lending, all these all these peripheral fields and you're interested in real estate development, like now is a great time to jump and just present yourself as a project manager, brush up on a little bit of pro forma financial modeling education. And I think <laughs> you'd be really well established for that field.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, here's a big question that we wrap it up with. How does your real estate and or your job or company have an impact on the world? Well, that's
2: an easy one for Jesse. Five seconds
0: (laughs) or less. Five seconds or less.
1: Wrap it up in
2: one word.
0: Penguin.
1: Real estate developers get a bad rap, right? Like we hear all the time, like, Oh, those developers, they're ruining our city. And I think we can make an impact by showing that, thoughtful, considerate development improves our neighborhoods and improves our cities. And it's not just about making the biggest financial return. Um, And I think for me, that's, that's the biggest impact is to show like we can be good guys too.
0: (laughs) Well, Jesse, you are a good developer. You're a great podcast guest. So thanks for coming on Jesse Ledesma.
1: Thank you so much for having me.